Okay, sure. I think it's working, or maybe not. Yeah, it is. Okay, so tonight's Torah portion, and I can't see the screen tonight, so you guys are on your own, is called uh, Ria, and it means behold or look or uh, words like that. So the last week's Torah portion, uh, and those are the sections that are contained in the Torah portion, last week was called Ikav, which is rewards or result. And this whole, where we are in the timeline of Jewish history is we are in, obviously we're in the book of Deuteronomy, the last of the five books. And we're at that point where last week, uh, well, you've probably heard about these Jews that were in Egypt and then they were set free. And then there's this whole Red Sea thing and there's all these events that happened and they moved around the desert and in about 13 months they found themselves at the promised land and the people said well we should send some spies in they sent spies in they came back 10 of the 12 said it's a great place just like the lord said but we can't conquer it and the lord called that an evil report because he wasn't asking them to conquer it he was going to conquer it he was just asking them to go and they wouldn't go so the punishment was they were to wander in the desert for the next 38 years until they all died. So they're now, we're 38 years into this second desert wandering. Moses and the, and the people are at the mountain in, in uh, Arabia. And the Lord says, okay, you've been here long enough. Now they're on their 42nd camp or something. And every camp has a name and every name has a meaning. And, and the whole the book of Numbers, we call it Numbers, in, in Hebrew it's called Bamidbar. Midbar is a word for desert, and it's also the word for speaking. So the whole idea of the book of Midbar was that the Lord is speaking to his people in the desert. And of course we completely miss that when you read the book of Numbers, because we, we think, oh, it's just about, there's 54,000 of those, and 55,000 of those, and 84,000 of those. Numbers, well that has nothing to do with the intent of the book. So the book is that the Lord is speaking to his people. He's teaching them these 38 years. So in the last, uh, this one called Rewards last week, the Lord said to Moses, okay, you have been in the desert long enough. You've learned, or hopefully you've learned, as much as you're going to learn. It's time to go. So they take off to the promised land. And we discovered that Moses is not going to be allowed into the promised land for his uh, seemingly minor transgression, but we covered that in a different Torah portion. And the book of uh, Deuteronomy, or Devrim, the word in Hebrew for a word is Debar. Devrim is, in Hebrew, speaking, recapping, recounting. And that's what Moses is doing. That's the book of Deuteronomy. So in that sense, it's one of the most important books you should ever read, because Moses is speaking is recounting all of the wisdom and all of the instructions and judgments and statues and commandments that the Lord has given him uh, since he's been in charge of these stiff-necked and uh, somewhat difficult people. He has to give them all this information again before they cross over into the promised land, at which point he's going up to Mount Pisgah and he will die. So that's where we are. He's, he, they are camped out right in front of the promised land. And he's continuing his 
recapping of the words of the Lord and the difference between Deuteronomy and say uh, Exodus or Leviticus or, you know, because in, in those days, the Lord would speak directly to Moses face to face. And then Moses would speak to the children. And that was kind of an interesting line of communication that never happened before and hasn't happened since. And so the book of Deuteronomy, he's recapping all that, but he's also giving the whys. Like the Lord said this, and this is why he said it. This is what you must do. This is what he meant. He's, he's expressing things in Deuteronomy that aren't expressed anywhere else. And that's, this is gonna be his last, last hurrah, I guess. This is the last chance he has to talk to the people. And he knows, and, and actually we'll get into that in this Torah portion, he knows that as soon as they cross over, things are gonna be vastly different. Because all of the people in the desert that he's bringing, remember, the people from the Exodus have all died. These are the children of the Exodus generation. They've, their entire lives they have spent in the desert listening to the Lord talk to Moses and Moses would talk to them. Manna's been falling from heaven. Water's been coming from rocks. They've been moving around. They've been learning. They've been seeing God in that way. They've, they traveled with the tabernacle. So God was right there in their midst. His, uh, his cloud kept them cool in the day. His fire kept them warm in the night. He provided all their food. That was going to end. The moment they crossed into the promised land, they would have no more need of that because the Lord was not going to bring them food because they were crossing into a land, and we talked about this last week, that is um, so productive that it will grow 30, 60, 100 times what you planned. Their life will be completely different because they, they no longer have to rely on the Lord every day for food and water. They no longer have the Lord in their midst. They no longer have the Lord speaking to Moses. It will be completely different. And Moses prophesied last week that the people would grow stale in the land because their existence would be easy and the tabernacle would be far away and God wouldn't be in their presence and he wouldn't be speaking directly to Moses. And this is a good thing, except after generations, they're gonna grow stale and they're gonna need another wilderness experience or there's gonna to have to be some event that shakes their world in such a way that they will return to the ways that they are right now. Because right now they've learned as much as they're going to learn. They're about to, to engage into the promised land, reap the benefits, and that was last week's called rewards, reap the rewards of everything the Lord had for them. But could they maintain their relationship with the Lord? And Moses prophesied correctly that they would not be able to. So that's where we are. So he's continuing his his uh, sermon, his speech, his information to these people. And he's already knows, he's concerned that he's not going to be there. And the Lord's not going to be right in their midst. He's going to be at Jerusalem, but they're going to be all over the place. And life will be easy. And he's concerned.
So with that, he starts this one called Look or Behold or something. And he's just continuing on um, in this idea of rewards. And, and one of the other things he says last week that he will, he said it directly last week. Do not add to or take away from the word of the Lord. Okay, well, that seems obvious, right? And he's going to hit it again this week, and it comes up a number of times. And we think to ourselves, well, duh, that's, you know, of course we wouldn't do that. And yet, <laughs> we do. We take away the, and, and again, when you're reading through the Tanakh, you'll often, I think, 103 times or something, see the phrase Judah and Israel, or Ephraim and Judah, or something. It'll give you two names. Typically, it's Israel and Judah. And as, bless you, as 20, I'm glad you didn't try to hold that in. As 21st century American Christians, we read, often read, Israel and Judah as being the same people, right? Because they're those people over there, those Jews, and it's not. Israel is is describing a different group of people than Judah is. And Israel is Jacob, Jacob is Ephraim. So you'll see sometimes Jacob, you'll see sometimes Ephraim, you'll see sometimes Israel, and you need to put it in context. Is he talking about the country of Israel, the people of Israel, the, the man Israel, or is he talking about Israel? And often it's all of those. And who is Israel? And I will suggest and have suggested for some time that often when you see the word Israel, you should think of us. That is people committed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who were not Jews, who were not in the land. People like Rahab and Elijah and Caleb. And there's any number of people who are not Jews, but they joined themselves to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and even Abraham, for crying out loud, of course, wasn't a Jew. Um, those people you can count as Israel. And I'm not suggesting that we are replacing Israel. A lot of people get all uppity about that and then they fly out of here half cocked. I'm not suggesting that. I, I totally refute that idea. There is no replacing Israel. Israel is God's chosen people and that's, that's the way it is. Um, but I think often in the context of what you're reading, Israel can describe us, Gentile believers who live outside the land. And Judah describes Jewish believers who live in the land. So often you'll see whatever the situation is addressed to Israel and Judah because they're two separate groups of people that have the same focus and the same God, but they're in two circumstances. They're Jews living in Israel or they're Gentiles living outside of Israel, or in some cases in Israel. So when, when he's saying, do not take away from and do not add to, we'll read, uh, we, I think we even get to it tonight, maybe, um, that Ephraim typically, and that would be us, takes away from the word of God. And Judah typically adds to, because the rabbis add all sorts of rules and regulations and laws and commandments that are going way past what the Lord ever said. And we tend to dismiss the vast majority of the things the Lord does say and just focus on 
the things that we like. You know, let's love each other. Awesome, great. That you're commanded to do that, but there's more to it than that. So tonight, um, the Torah portion called "Behold" begins Deuteronomy chapter eleven, verse twenty-six. This and this, by the way, is a uh, five-chapter sedra, and it's. I mean, it's three or four hours worth of good stuff. So I've decided not to hardly do any of it and just hit a couple of key points along the way. And hopefully you guys are reading it and can fill in some of the blanks for yourself. So the Sedra begins this way. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, which was why the sign was up there. A blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, to which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I commanded you this day to go after other gods which you have not known. So this word in English that's translated as obey, a blessing if you obey, is the Hebrew word shema, which if you're familiar with the little mezuzah on the door or you know you go into any Jewish house, you see a little um, a thing called a mezuzah on the door and it has a little Jewish scroll rolled up in it, and what's in it is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and often some other things. And it begins, it's the, it's the most famous verse to a Jew because they recite it a minimum of two times a day. And it begins, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is God. He is one. So it begins with that word Shema here. But in, in Hebrew, Shema, because I may have mentioned, in Hebrew, there's a very few uh, words, and they mean several things. Well, Shema means here, of course, and it means obey. So the idea in Hebrew is if you're actually hearing something and internalizing it, rather than just listening to it, if you're hearing it and making it a part of who you are, then you will obey it. Because again, in Hebrew, the idea of words are true. God's words are true. And it wasn't until the father of lies that somebody decided you could twist words into something that wasn't true. But the typical Hebrew understanding is words are true, especially if they're spoken by the Lord. So it begins, um, obey, really. I set before you this day a blessing or a curse. Well, how do you get the blessing? If, if, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you this day. Well, how, how are you cursed? Well, if you don't obey them, it's pretty simple. So the question then, and we have this question for years, is how do you know? <clears throat> because I know very few Christians that even know the commandments of the Lord. Oh, yeah, we might know the Ten Commandments. Most Christians don't even know the Ten. But there are many more. Well, how do you know? How can you obey something that you don't know? Okay, so it says a blessing or a curse. And it, it, what he's saying is if you obey the commandments, if you live your life that way, if, you, uh, if, if that is who you are, and the one I always use is if your load falls off your camel, if you're out there helping your neighbor pick it up, you know, if you're that kind of person, if, if, if all of the commandments of the Lord you've internalized and you actually live that way, then your life will be blessed. And it's, it's not a tit-for-tat thing. If you do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. You know, God doesn't work that way. 
but it's inherent in your actions. If you act this way, you will be blessed. You just will. If you don't act this way, it's a curse. You will not be blessed. And again, it's not tit for tat. It's not, you know, you do five good things, I'll give you two blessings. It doesn't work that way at all. So that's what he's saying. And I, I, I guess I would, um, and we mention this often, drag you back to Matthew 13, where he's, uh, Jesus is talking to the multitude of people. And he draws back into the disciples and the disciples say, well, why, why do you always talk to them in parables? You know, why can't you just tell them? And his response was, well, to you it's given to know the mysteries of God, but to them it's not. So the question then is, well, how does that happen? And the general philosophy is that happens if you know the Torah. These disciples, if you want to call them that, apostles, who, who, you know, the Peter, Paul, and Mary, these guys, they knew the Torah. They knew it inside and out. They were teachers of it. And apparently... Many of the, and again, in, in, in Greek, this word for the, the multitudes of people is actually rabble, if you translated it into English properly. So the rabble are following him around because they want to see something. They want to see the miracles. They want the free bread. They want all the stuff. And then when he says, well, this is what I need from you, then they all disappear. And the disciples didn't disappear because they knew the Torah. They knew who he was. So it, it kind of uh, goes back to that. You sort of have to know what it says. And that's the foundation of everything you read the disciples to do. Everything Paul did. And that's all based on his understanding of the Torah. And if we don't understand it and we're as a group in a country really poor at that it's it's difficult i would think to really understand what the disciples are saying and that's why we wound wind up with uh, uh you know and i hate to say it but i mean we, the churches are so weak because they, they don't have a foundation. And you have 4,200 different denominations and churches and religions. And oh, how does that happen? Because this very section of scripture, Moses, well, and the Lord is saying, and he's been saying this from the beginning. There's one. There's only one. It's me. The first letter of the first word of the Bible, the enlarged bet, the picture of the house where the Lord is, is building this house and wants his children to fill it, which is what houses do. It's one. There aren't 4,200 houses. There's one. There's one truth. And we get all wrapped around the axles about, you know, the Methodists do this and the Episcopals do that, and the Catholics do this, and who knows what those guys do, and oh, I don't belong to any of that stuff. I'm an open Bible guy, and you know, my pastor was trained at such and such a seminary, and why? <laughs> There's one, one truth. So that's maybe getting a little ahead of ourselves here, but. <laughs>
You know, it's either the dog or the lightning or somebody comes in and trips over a chair. I didn't know what to do. Uh, we could use the rain, though. Okay, so, so back to a blessing and a curse, how he starts this message out is, you know, he says, um, Behold, I will set before you this day a blessing or a curse. And he goes on. And then the next verses, 29 through 32, says this. And if you're, you know, if you're paying attention, you should recognize, and I don't expect any of you to do it, but if you were, once you get tuned to Hebrew and the, and the way it works, you would recognize this immediately. He's just repeating what he just said in the verse before, but he's saying it in a different, more colorful way. So starting in verse 29, it says, Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And they, are they not on the other side of the Jordan towards the setting sun to the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moriah? For you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you will possess it and dwell in it, and you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I shall set before you today. Okay, so you can see how those are identical, right? Okay, look. Mount, it says, the, put the blessing on Mount Gerizim. Gerizim is, uh, is from a word for to cut off, or to separate, or to set apart. So the blessing is set apart, uh, the curse is on Mount Ebal. Ebal is the word for stony, hard, you know, thank hard. Um, and are they not on the other side of the Jordan? It's from Jordan, which, uh, and again, Hebrew is an awesome language because each letter is a picture, and each letter is also a number. So you can put the pictures together, and it forms the idea of the word often. So this word is the head through the tent, on the sheep. So it means to dwell or to sit in the tent. It means to go home. So what he's saying is in the heart of the promised land, there are two mountains. One is blessing, one is cursing. But you are going to Jordan, the, the, the tent, and you will dwell in the tent. And it says uh, Canaanites opposite Gilgal. Gilgal is the Hebrew word, or, or is from the Hebrew word for circuit. Okay. Gilgal is where Abraham crossed over into the pro Abraham Hebrew Eber crossover. That's the same word, where he crossed over into the promised land, and that Gilgal is exactly where the Lord met him and said to him, "All this land I'm promising to your seed." And this, of course, was hundreds of years previous. So, as the as the children, after their 38 years of wandering, 40 years in total are now crossing over. They're crossing over at Gilgal, the exact place that Abraham came. And this is the land he promised to him. They're his seed. This is completing that circle, that circuit. That word is Gilgal, of course. So, you know, and Hebrew works like this. Beside the terebinth trees of Moriah. Well, Moriah is from Rhea, the word behold. It means to learn because if you're learning, then you see, which is this word rea. So it's, it all, and by the way, uh, Morea and Mount Moriah are from the same word rea. So on Mount Moriah, we see the Lord. Moses saw the Lord. Abraham saw the Lord. All of the, it's, 
it always goes around and around and around. So it says, be careful to observe, that word is Shema, which you just heard, it means to hear and obey. So you shall be careful to hear and obey all the statutes and the judgments which I set before you today. So we'll just skip over some of this other stuff because I think we've already hit it. Um, as Moses knew what was going to happen. Remember, Moses was debating with the Lord when the Lord said, you're not going into the promised land. You're going up to Pisgah and you will die there and your bones will be buried there. And he said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. How about if you just let me come in and see the goodly mountain? What mountain? Well, he's obviously talking about Moriah. He wanted to see the Lord because he already knew this was going to happen. It was in the future, but he knew it was going to happen. So the Lord made a compromise. And he let Moses see, it says, all of the land. Well, you can't see all of the land from Pisgah. You can see a lot of it, but it's just too big. So he let him see all the events that were going to happen in the land of Israel. He got to see the people. He got to see the Lord. He got to see the crucifixion. He got to see the resurrection. He got to see all those things. So he saw that. And that's Moriah, Morea, Rhea. It's all from the same word. It means basically to see these things. So Amos 11, or I'm sorry, Amos 8:11 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And of hearing, of course, is Shema, which means of obeying or internalizing or hearing and doing the words of the Lord. The Lord has said, I will do nothing, but I don't tell my prophets ahead of time. I'm getting wet. <laughs> um, which actually feels good. But, uh, so Amos is, is, is prophesying. <laughs> is prophesying about a future time when the people, somebody's trying to show you something, right? <laughs> <laughs> Listen and obey. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm doing my best here. Um, he's, he's prophesying about a time of where there will be a famine of knowledge, of hearing, of internalizing, of doing, of understanding the words of the Lord. And, of course, when that time comes, then the Lord will have to because he loves you. If he didn't care for you, he would just let you rot on the vine. But he does love you. So he understands that when this time comes, then he has to do something. He has to put you in a spot that will cause you to seek after him. And we tend not to seek after him when things are going well. We have to be in the desert. We have to have issues. We have to be in captivity. We have to be in bondage to something. And then we cry out to the Lord. It would be so much simpler if we could just focus on the Lord and conduct ourselves accordingly and be the people God wanted us to be. But we just typically are not those people. So Amos is telling us about that. Last week in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, it says, So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. 
that he might make you know that by that man shall not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord that was the entire 100% purpose of the manna from heaven because you remember the manna was the word and they got it every day and when they said we are disgusted with this despicable bread they weren't talking about the food they were talking about getting his word every day and he needed to correct that situation and he he did so if you if you think back or think up i guess to paul in first corinthians chapter 10 remember and we hit this all the time that paul says in first corinthians chapter 10 and i don't have this up there because you should all know it um, that we should look to the Exodus generation as our examples to learn what they did and don't do those things and learn what they didn't do and do the things that we should do. So you put all these pieces together, and these are only three or four of the 200 pieces I could lay out there, that we are these people. I believe we're living in the last generation or darn near the last generation. Maybe my daughter's in the last generation. And we are looking at these people as examples. And these people did not follow the word of the Lord. They despised the word of the Lord and it caused them to go into the desert and die. And it was their children then that came into the land and Moses is recapping all this history for them and that things would be different now. They would be, you're gonna be on your own. You're gonna to have to make a choice. You will have to choose blessing or cursing. You're gonna to have to choose to do what the Lord asks you to do and be blessed beyond all measure or you will choose not to do those things and you will be cursed. Pretty simple. And of course, Paul and Hosea and Moses and Malachi and Isaiah and Jeremiah and a bunch of other guys have said, we're not going to be able to do that. We are going to need the Lord's input to return to him and be ready for these, these end of days. So I look at, and I, it, this is obviously is not biblical. I didn't get this out of the Bible because there was no America, United States in the Bible. But I look at the way this country was founded and um, it was clearly founded as a Christian nation after four or five false starts. And I've mentioned it before that William Bradford, the first governor of the Plymouth Plantation, when he wrote the history of the Plymouth Plantation, he wrote the first 20 pages in Hebrew. The debate back in the 1600s was should the national language of this country be Hebrew or English, and unfortunately English won. Um, they, they knew the Lord. They knew the Lord of the Old Testament. They knew the Lord of the New Testament. It's the same guy. And they, were, they knew what he said. And they were able to do, I would suggest, to follow, to obey, to hear more of the things that, from the Lord that, than we do. And over the last 300 years, it's exactly like what happened in uh, the promised land. The people came in, life was good, the land was productive, they were following the Lord, it was easy, the Lord drove the people out, you get 30, 60, 100 uh, percent increase on your planting, they had water, they had, it, there's, there's stories about 
how the Jews didn't even have to get up to water their plants because the rains would come and the snow would melt and the water would fall and there'd be rivers and canals. And, but when they were in Egypt, there was no such thing. They would have to water their plants with a bucket. They'd have to go get the water and bring them to the plant. You'd have to do that every day. They didn't have to do that in the promised land. God took care of all that and it just grew. And it's still that way. When God's people inhabit the land, the land responds. And you'll read this all the time through scripture. You'll, you'll read it how it, it seems to be talking about the land as though it were a person. And we kind of breeze over that because we can't really make sense of it. But it kind of is. The land does respond to God's people. And to this day, I wish your wife was here, you can, you can be in Israel and you can stand on the Israel side of the fence and it's lush and green and things are growing and look on, on the Gaza Strip side of the fence and it's Mount Ebal. It's just dirty and hard and nothing, even weeds don't grow. It's a terrible place because God's people aren't inhabiting it. When God's people were inhabiting Gaza, it was producing more oranges than Florida, more tulips than Denmark. And then they gave it up for peace and it's dead now because no Jews live there. But the, the land does respond. And it is, you know, it, it, you've, you've read that the, the creation groans waiting for the redemption. I mean, it is waiting for the same thing we're waiting for. So it too can be restored in some form or fashion. I don't know what, what all that means. But as you're reading through this Torah portion, Moses is talking about things like poverty and famine and fear and strife. And he's saying those things don't exist in a place where the people follow God, where they hear and obey and do those things. Those can't exist. But they have them. And they've always had them. And we have them. So A plus B equals C, right? We have them, they have them, because they never followed all that the Lord had for them. And that's the picture of heaven, if you want to put it that way, right, is that place where there is none of this. There's no famine or poverty or disease or war. Or, and it's because you're following the things that the Lord has to say. Um, so this Torah portion is, is uh, focusing to a good extent on, okay, you guys are going into this land and things will now be different. So this is how I want you to live. So a lot of the things in this Torah portion, particularly, bless you, are specific to living in the land. And sometimes um, people will read these things and they they're not, they don't put it in, in the context that it should be. And the context for this particular Torah portion that Moses is saying right now to those people is once you are in the land, then, and he goes on to explain what you have to do or what you'll want to do or what you'll need to do. 
Well, we're not in the land. So a lot of this stuff doesn't apply directly to us. For instance, and I just heard this the other day on the news, um, the Bible says that you are to go in and utterly eliminate the Canaanites in this land. You're to kill them, drive them off. It says the land, the land will vomit them out. And you get so many people, especially the presidential candidates, who will say, well, see, Christians are evil. I mean, they just go in and kill people. Okay, well, I guess that's true. The Lord told them this was their land. He brought the Canaanites in a thousand years before. They built huge cities and crops and orchards and, you know, all these waterways, fortified cities, and so that it would be ready for God's people. But they were the vilest, most, they were just a horrible group of people by all accounts. And they needed to go. Their inequity was full. They were done. And they were dead men walking anyway because they had no respect for anyone's gods, certainly not the only true and living God. And to the, to the extent that archeologists today, when they're excavating Jericho and some of these other places and they find the mortar and the bricks, they're full of infant bones because they killed their own children as an offering to some pagan God. They tattooed their bodies up, they pierce them to look scary and it is scary you've seen the ms-13 guys you know that are got their faces all tattooed up and it's frightening and they would just randomly that there was no code they would randomly kill people and every village had you know it's like the muslims today they'll just fight anybody what did the lord say about uh ishmael he's wild ass of a man, his hand will be against every man and every man's hand will be against him. Those are the Canaanites. And they had, they had served their purpose for the Lord. They had never turned to the Lord. They had turned from the Lord and their time was over. It was done. So the Lord said, I'm going ahead of you. We're going to get rid of those people. Only those people. He said, do not touch, do not even set a sandal in the land of Edom or Ammon or one of the other guys, because I'm not giving you that land. I'm not giving you those people yet. Their iniquity was not yet full. And in most cases, it would become full. And the Lord would then say, okay, fine, take them out. Because, and we've done the math before, his grace and mercy is 250 times more than his judgment. So in order to fill that cup of iniquity to where the Lord says, that's it, you got to go away. Well, Canaan was there. And the Ammonites would get there. And the Edomites are going to be there. But right now, he says, don't touch those people, only the Canaanites. So you're going into this land. And the first thing I want you to do is utterly destroy, after, after you've destroyed the people, utterly destroy their false gods and their pagan altars. And not just destroy them, but the trees that they worship. Don't just cut them down, dig them up. No roots. I don't want any, any suckers coming up. I don't want, because I know... If a sucker comes up, you're going to let it grow and pretty soon it'll be a tree and you'll be worshiping. So all the roots and everything have to go. 
And a lot of people will see that and say, you know, and again, I just saw this this week on the news. Oh, yeah, the, the Christians are criminals. They just kill all these people. Well, that's a little out of context, maybe. But that's what was going on here. So <clears throat> Moses had said they're traveling with the tabernacle. God is in their midst. They, and remember, they said how many people were out on each side. And what it did was formed a big cross with God in the middle. And it traveled through the desert that way. Once you get into the promised land, tabernacle is not with you anymore. So what does that mean? And he recounts uh, some of the different offerings. And, the th and, and ultimately what he says is um, you can do, do these offerings, do some things at your house or where you think it needs to be done. But there are some things you just can't do. There are certain offerings that can only happen at the tabernacle that you cannot do because there will not be a tabernacle yet. It will be 14 years hence. So he's giving them instructions about that. And those instructions don't have uh, a ton of rel relevance to us, except that the ideas are always the same. You know, we live outside of the land. We don't have the tabernacle or God in our midst. So there are certain things that we cannot do, but that doesn't mean we can't recognize them and, and search out the ideas behind them and find out what the meanings are and be ready for that time when the tabernacle is in our midst and we will be doing that stuff. And I've said a number of times, it's my belief, and I you know, could more or less back it up from scripture, that at some point, all of his children will be returned to Israel. And presumably that will be all or most of some of us, right? We want to be his children. We are going to be returned to his land and the tabernacle will be there. So once we're in the land with our Lord and the tabernacle, presumably, then there are certain things that we will be asked to do or not even asked to do, be able to do that we're not able to do here. So we are kind of like the people in Deuteronomy 12, 9 here. Um, for as yet you have not come to rest to the rest and the inheritance for which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. And I suggest that this is one of the uh -oh, one of the things when we talk about end times, we typically talk about Matthew 24 and, you know, the tides and the uh, nation against nation and ethnic group against ethnic group and wars and rumors of wars and famines and pestilence and all of that stuff. And all of that's true. And it's going to happen exactly as he described it. But there are a ton of other things that will happen that you can glean from Daniel and, and uh, Deuteronomy and Exodus and Jeremiah and all these other people. And one of these things I suggest is that we will be, and I can't explain how, but we will be moved to, transported to, offered a way to, passage to the promised land. And the Lord will return and it will be awesome. So there's this big, um, in, especially in this, 
in this uh, Torah portion, there is a, a big deal about what you can and what you can't do in, in the land. If you're out of the land, you can't do this. If you're in the land, you have to do that. Accept that. The tabernacle's not here yet. So then we have to do, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, gets, um, it gets confusing and it gets complicated. And it's very easy for people, and I'm certain that we all, I know I have, read this stuff in the past and thought, well, that's just stupid. Why am I even reading the Old Testament? This is just dumb. Well, the reason is, it's, it's bizarrely obvious once you figure it out and read it in Scripture, there is a single tabernacle. What does one mean? Unity. If everyone's worshiping at the same tabernacle, they're worshiping the same God in the same way with the same words. You don't have Methodists and Presbyterians and Jews and Buddhists and Catholics and all these people arguing with each other about, whoa, yeah, this is what he said. Oh, that's not what he said. This is what we do. Well, I don't do that. I don't even like fish. You know, it. I mean, it's crazy. We spend so much time debating and arguing with all these other denominations and it's just a giant waste of time it's never never been what the lord wanted he wants a central tabernacle so we all worship the same god in the same way know the same rules do the same things and we grow from that when you have a thousand people that believe the same thing and that do the same thing and that are focused on living in a particular way that is much easier than having uh a thousand groups of 10 that all are fighting each other over, oh, no, no, we only have hot dogs on Thursdays and no bingos on Tuesdays. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So you start to get this idea because it's repeated a hundred times about the tabernacle. And you can either look at it like, well, that's really stupid. Why are they telling me this stuff all the time? Or you can look at it like what it means is we all need to be together. We all need to be focused on the words of the Lord. And that's what he says. The commandments and instructions and judgments of the Lord. We all need to know them and be on the same boat. But we typically are. Even though, no matter what church you're in, it will read things like, you know, one God, one tabernacle, one Torah, one baptism. We say those things. And in our mind, we think, oh, we're right. All those other guys are wrong. And I just saw or somebody saw something about the Catholics the other day who were saying, oh yeah, a lot of what we believe doesn't agree with the Bible, but the Bible's wrong. <laughs> what? I mean, what kind of fool is even gonna make a statement like that? If you think it, that's one thing, but to say it? say the Bible's a dead letter. Yeah, okay, there you go. Come on, that, that's, okay, so when Moses says, sorry, calm down. When Moses says, you're going to grow stale in the land. That's what he's talking about. And he didn't say you might. He said you are. So what do we do? And I guess... Um, Get back to the thing we're supposed to be focusing on instead of the minutia. Right. Yeah. That's and, a human nature, I think, to um, make it much more complicated than it needs to be by... You know, oh, we didn't like, we don't like that commandment, so we're going to create our own church, and now we're going to... Yeah, we're going to change what that means. Yeah, I know. It's more complicated than it really is. And it's not like there aren't plenty of examples in Scripture, right? Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they both wanted 
to serve the Lord. I mean, read, read about those guys. Their desire was to serve the Lord, was to, was to serve the throne of David, was to bring, you know, this next, whatever it was going to be. That was their heart's desire. And they couldn't get along, so they split the nation Israel in half. Ten tribes went one way, two tribes went the other way. Okay, so that's, from where we sit, that's pretty stupid. But I mean, I, I recognize that they, in their hearts, they thought they were doing the right thing. So then you've got uh, Rehoboam, I don't know, one of the Bohms. He does not have Jerusalem in his territory. And he knows that the word says you have to go to Jerusalem to do these things at least three times a year to worship the feasts and you know all these other things. But that's in the other guy's territory, and he's afraid that, well, if they go up there and worship, then they'll stay, because, you know, that's where God is. So he creates his own stuff down in his territory, he creates a golden calf, places you could worship in different locations, you know, polling stations closer to home. So, you know, okay, well, that didn't work out for him. You've got the, yes? Those were the first two denominations. Yeah, exactly. They are the first two. Well, maybe not the first two, but you've got the golden calf. Same thing. Where did, where did this Moses? We don't know what happened to him. It's been 40 days. He's not coming back. Well, we got to do something. I know. Let's build a golden calf and worship that. I mean, you know, we do, that's us. That's the way we are. And we shouldn't be that way. It's kind of like Satan in the Garden of Eden saying, well, that's not really what That's, man, that's exactly the same. And that's exactly what he does. And we talked about that. Yeah. That's right. Wouldn't it have been Judah? Because Jerusalem would have been in Israel. And didn't Judah fall before Israel did? I think so. Yeah, so it would have been Judah, and God let them fall. Sure. Let them get conquered, because they, probably because of what you just said, because he told them not to change anything and to go to Jerusalem to worship. Yeah. They changed it, and so they were the first one to fall to the enemy. Yeah, and he does. He's done that repeatedly. You know, the temples will fall, and the people will whine. And oh, why did you let that happen, God? And he basically says, you know, paraphrasing. Well, you weren't using them anyway. You know, it, you should. It was just a social club, and I'm not into that. So I'd left long ago. So yeah, we're just going to knock them down, and you can go on about whatever it is you do, and not be bothered by having to follow after me. Well, that should bug you, and it didn't. It didn't bug them. Particular. I mean, you know, they'd repent and, you know, something, eh, you know, whatever. But never for long. And we look at that and go, that's just crazy. What's wrong with those stupid people? Until we look in the mirror, and that's exactly what we do. We have all of these things we worship, and we do what we want to do. You know, and we think it says this, and you read a verse that completely contradicts that. Well, that, you know. That uh, the Old that, Testament. That, yeah, that's, we don't need that. It's the Old Testament. What good is that? Okay, so I wanted to uh, mention something else here. Uh, let's see. Uh, well, I was, I was actually going to say even the Samaritans, who were the other kingdom, you know, who were Jews, but not, they, they were uh, not looked at by the Jews as Jews. Even the Samaritans knew where to worship. They knew they were supposed to worship in, in Jerusalem, but the Jews wouldn't let them in there. So they're like discussing this with Jesus. Well, we know we're supposed to, you know, but... We don't. We worship here at Jacob's well because we can't, you know, they won't let us in over there. 
that's just the way mankind is, I guess. Okay, so Genesis 22.4, and this might seem a little off the beam right at the moment, but it says, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his, play, his face, his eyes, I'm sorry. Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And you'd have to read the whole thing, put it in context. But this word uh, that's translated afar off is rakok. And it, it means uh, a great distance, but it can mean it in a great distance in time or a great distance in measure. You know, it could be 100 miles or it could be a thousand years. So there's this idea that Abraham, uh, when, when he was in Gilgal, I guess the first time, lifted up his eyes and saw this place afar. Well, the meaning of this, if you're a Hebrew, is God showed him all that was going to happen. He showed him the things that his, because his seed was going to inherit this land. God promised it. He showed him the things of this land. He showed him Mount Moriah. He showed him the Lord. He showed him the crucifixion, the resurrection, the salvation. He showed him the, the people. He showed him everything. Because this was thousand years or hundreds of years anyway, after he would die. This is the same thing that happened to Moses. God showed him all of these things. And it was the same thing. It was far off in time, not necessarily in distance. It would have been a few miles in distance but it was years and years and years in time. And so you remember when Jesus was arguing one of the many times with the Pharisees, um, and he told them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. And they didn't know what to make of that. They said, well, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have seen Abraham? Well, this is how, and there's this undercurrent that goes through the entire Old Testament and certainly into the New Testament about God has shown all these things from the very beginning. Again, the bee, the bear sheep, the house at the beginning, that's how he starts all of scriptures. I am building a house for me and my family and I'm building a family to live in this house with me. And the rest of scripture from the first letter of the first book to the last letter of Revelation is about how that's going to happen. And he gave, it's clear, he gave many of the fathers a vision of what was going to happen. And that's what powered Moses and Abraham and all of these, Jacob and Daniel and Joseph. These guys knew stuff that they didn't they didn't learn it they were shown it and they were teaching people that and to some degree that and this is you know that's kind of our job because i look around today and i don't see this I see good, well-meaning, studious pastors teaching that God absolutely loves you. And he does. He will, he will go to any extent to make sure that we are saved. And that's often the end of it. I mean, there's, you know, there's a sermon every week and it's, it's good and it has good stuff and the stuff in it is correct. 
but it's not it's not this stuff it's not the stuff that i think we'll need um, let me read you from hosea chapter 6 starting in verse 2 it says after two days he'll revise us revive us and in the third day will raise us up and we shall live in his sight okay so hosea lived 2500 years ago it has been more than two days so is this a literal two days obviously not so after two days or on the third day he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight and then we shall know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come to us as rain, as the latter rain and the former rain unto the earth. And all through the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus is referred to as the latter rain. And here's another one of these. Verse four, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is in a, as a morning cloud. It is as the early dew and it goes away. And we're very familiar with that. You get up in the morning, the grass is wet. And by nine or 10 o'clock, it's not wet anymore. That's us. That's these people. They came into the land after 40 years. They learned the lesson. They were all gung-ho for the Lord. And then... It just fades away. Same thing with America. We were all gun. That was the that was the purpose that every single group that ever came to what is America came for was to show the natives, whoever those people may be, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And most of the groups did not do that. But that was their purpose. That's how they got their funding. That's how they received their charter. They came to teach whoever was in this land about the God that we know. We finally got to the fifth group, I think, and these people actually did. They spoke to the Indians and they converted Indians and they shared with them the truth. And some came and some did not. And they did the Lord's work. You know, there's a couple of books by Peter Marshall you should read if you're ever interested in that stuff. And uh, they were following the ways of the Lord. And then stuff happens. Life happens. You know, it, it gets hard and there's stuff to do. And we have jobs and bills and injuries. And, you know, there's things that happen. And it tends to take our focus off of what's important to what's now. And pretty soon we become stale. And if we become stale, we're not falling after the Lord. And we're like, we're like this, O Ephraim, or Jacob, or Israel, or us. What shall I do to you? Judah, what shall I do unto you? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, as the early dew, and it goes away. That's us. Therefore, I have hewed them by prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgments are as the light that goes forth for I desired mercy not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings and this is repeated a number of times in scripture I desired mercy and not sacrifice and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings we are to do offerings we are to share what the Lord has given with us with others that's the mechanical part of following the Lord but like he says don't neglect the weightier matters of mercy and justice and, and, and faith. 
we get so wrapped up in giving and serving and, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I gave, you know, 8% of my income to this. And those are good things. Do those things. But we tend to forget he desires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires us to live a certain way. And the only way we can live that way is by knowing what he said. And we're not willing to spend the time to even find out what he said. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You can go to church a thousand times and you can make offerings. You can give half of your income until you can't live anymore. And it's, you know, great. Amen and hallelujah, do it. But that's not his desire. His desire is that we know him. And out of that knowledge, out of that mercy comes the sacrifice and comes the, the offerings and stuff. But we get, it's just, it's easier for us to give or do than to actually commit to knowing and loving, to commit to the mercy and the faith and the justice of the Lord. And especially today, you know, you look at what, what did the Democrats come up with the other day? They're they're jettisoning every year since Clinton at their uh, presidential plank thing. They try to take God off of it. And they take, take the wording of God out of their plank. And then there's all this uproar. And they have to put it back. Every year since Clinton. Every four years since Clinton they've done this. This year they finally just came right out and said, screw you Christians. We don't want you. It's basically all this. And I'll send send it to you if you want. Did you guys get the gun thing? Yes. That was, I got a lot of stuff about that. Um, so that's the way the world is going. They are eliminating anything godly. We already know that. They're jettisoning Christians. The Democrats don't even feel like they need them. That's the way the world is going. Um, so back to Moses. So you guys all brought food today. Yeah, thank you. It was awesome. Good stuff. So don't be offended. Isaiah 66, 17 says, They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the garden behind one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the rat shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. Moses is on about uh, the food you can eat and how you have to process it and he's, he's this whole list of things. And of course, part of that is um, you're not supposed to eat pig, right? You're not supposed to eat uh, any, any garbage dwelling animal because God invented the world, right? He created everything and he knew that things would die and decay and fall to the ground. and there was no honey wagon to come pick it up. So he created animals like pigs and rats and vultures and ants and, and stuff. And then in the water, there's a whole other group of people that eat dead and decaying things in order to keep the, the world clean and healthy. That's God's plan. So he's created all these creatures to do that. And he's saying, those creatures are not food for you. I don't want my people eating out of a garbage truck. But 
there is nothing that is not enhanced with bacon. <laughs> so, how do we square that? <laughs> well, it's one of those, and it's, when you start looking at it, like pork is a third or a quarter the cost of beef. Now it costs just as much per pound to raise a pig as it does a cow. So why is it that pork is so cheap? Well, could it be Satan? You know, I mean, it, that's just the way everything, every commercial, the man is the idiot. Every TV show, the Christian is evil or stupid or both. It's the world. But I remember growing up and going to the farm and they just slopped the pigs, which means they all their right. leftovers, yeah. all that stuff was thrown in a bucket and given to the pigs. Well, you don't do that to cattle. No, of course not. So cattle eat. Yeah, and and today in America you don't do that. You know, pigs are as safe to eat as sheep or goats or cows or anything else. So we don't get this whole concept of you know, in these days if you ate a pig it could easily kill you because of the parasites in the pig and you know it's you have to make sure it's cooked, but there were no meat thermometers and the microwaves didn't work and all that. So eating a pig in these days was completely different than eating a pig today in the sense that it could easily kill you and those it certainly make you sick. Today it doesn't because of our, you know, our farming system and our agriculture department and they're inspected just like every other animal. So we lose this connection with God's word. And we're not supposed to eat pig. And it, today it won't matter. It doesn't it doesn't hurt you. It tastes good. It's fine. I suggest we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't, in, in the sea, it's the same way. There's animals that are designed by God to scrape the bottom and get all the crud out of the water so that the ocean is good. Those are garbage trucks. They are not food. Don't eat those things. And yet, they're quite tasty. So this is one of the many things that, um, obviously Moses wasn't on about the pigs today. He was on about uh, these are the animals you can eat. And he was saying, this is how you prepare them. And if you don't prepare them or can't prepare them that way, you can still eat them, even if you're unclean, because he recognizes we need to eat. And as long as you're doing what you can do to follow after the rules and commands and judgments and instructions of the Lord, then it's okay. So let me scroll down here. Um, if I can find it. No, I can't find it. So what he says, well, oh, I know where it is, is if you can't or don't or won't obey those commands, and if you eat things that you shouldn't eat, You're the least in the kingdom. But he doesn't say you're not in the kingdom. He just says you're the least of the kingdom. If you, if, if, if you do not do these things and you teach other people to, do, to not do these things, to obey the laws, then you're the least in the kingdom. 
Well, you're in the kingdom. <laughs> You'd rather be there than not, right? But that's, and I, and I, you know, I had this in here anyway, but I bring it up because this is one of these things people don't get. And it has nothing to do with, you know, anything other than what you do things for your wife or your children or whatever that you don't do for anybody else because you love it. You just, you will do stuff that you wouldn't normally do. And you will do it as a rule joyfully. That's how the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to obey his commandments for no other reason than he loves us and we love him. And if you love him, why wouldn't you obey his commandments? And it goes back to the original question. Well, if you don't know his commandments, how can you obey? And I don't know if you remember when we did the Passover at, at Eric's church a year or two ago, there was a young lady who's like 14 or something whose birthday was that night. It was on Passover. And so her mom called Eric and said, well, she'd like to come, which is kind of, you know, a 14-year-old wants to come to church on her birthday to do a Passover service? Okay. Can we bring a sheet cake for everybody? And he says, yeah, of course, that'll be great. Well, Passover is all about unleavened bread. You can't eat something leavened on Passover. I mean, that's, that's an abomination. But Eric said, yeah, he didn't know. And she brought the cake. She didn't know. And the girl didn't know. And so I was struggling with, well, what do I do with this? Because, of course, he didn't ask me if she could bring the cake. So there she is. There's the cake. There's 135 people. And I'm supposed to be eating leavened bread on Passover? This is not to be. And then I, the more I thought about it, it's like, well, Eric didn't know. The mom didn't know, the girl didn't know, and all of them wanted to be there. Well, of course, it's fine. The Lord judges your heart. Now, if they did it the following year, that would be a different deal. But they didn't know. And that's the case with us. We don't know because we don't study and we don't look at the things of the Passover or of the Old Testament often. We don't look at his commandments, judges, statutes. And when we do, then all of a sudden this light goes on. And we think, oh my gosh, I should, the first thing, at least the first thing I think is, oh no, what have I done? And then it's like, oh wait, this gives me a chance to change the way, the direction of my walk with him. This gives me an opportunity to show him that he is important to me, that I'm willing to sacrifice my bacon and eat turkey bacon, which isn't that awesome, for him, for no other reason than he asked me to. So we have, I assume those are pork ribs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing no one here will be punished because he looks at your heart. You brought the food because that's awesome right? You want to be part of the community. And you brought the food that maybe next year, you know, you won't bring. Or maybe you'll look at it a different way. That's fine. It's, and, and that's what I'm saying is it, God does not curse you because you've done something. And he does not bless you 
because you've done something. The blessing comes because you live your life in a way that, that seeks to follow him. Are you going to be perfect? No. Are you going to learn as you go? I hope so. Are you going to try to focus on those things and do those things? I would anticipate that you are. And you will grow, just like every person in the Bible. It took Abraham 175 years to get to the point where when God said, hey, by the way, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son, the one that you love. And he just said, okay. Because he knew. He'd already seen in the distance. He knew God had something up his sleeve. He, he thought he was going to resurrect him. He didn't know there was a ram caught in the thicket. He didn't, it didn't bother him. He was able to do that. But it only took him 175 years to get to that point. So I feel pretty good only being 61-ish or 2-ish or something. 1, 62? 62-ish. That I know some of this stuff, you know, already. Because <laughs> I'm probably not going to make it to 175. But, I mean, it's a walk. And God is not judgmental like they say he is. He seeks, he loves you. He loves us. He seeks his, his best for us as long as we're seeking our best for him. And that's, um, that's sort of where this uh, Torah portion was going. It talks about the men of Belial. We just read that, well, Belial means worthless. There are worthless men out there. There are people who, and I don't mean deadbeats, I mean worthless in the sense that they're not interested in falling after the ways of the Lord. They know the ways of the Lord. They've seen the, the people of the Lord do what the people of the Lord do. And they're not interested in following them. And the Lord calls them worthless. It says in here, do not cut yourselves. And we've, you know, that was one of these things that's always bugged me. Because I think of, you know, all these kids that are cutting themselves and making scars. and all. That's not what they're talking about. The word is gadad. And it actually means to assemble in troops or clans or I would suggest denominations. It says, don't do that. Don't separate yourself into groups that believe different things. Don't follow after different rules and gods and regulations and churches and denominations. Follow me. I've got the only truth. And everyone can do that. And if you don't, you're a man of Belial. You're worthless. Okay, Deuteronomy 14.2. We'll be done here shortly. 14.2, and thou art holy people unto the Lord God, and the Lord hath chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations that are in all the world. This word holy, a lot of you probably know it's kadosh. It means set apart. So to be holy means you're sanctified. You're different than the other people. You're in, you know, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. So kadosh means set apart. Kadosha, same word, feminine, means harlot. And you think, well, how do those two things square? Because a harlot is set apart as well. She's just set apart for evil. And you should be set apart for good. So the point I would make is that most people today, I assume probably everyone in this room, we live in the middle. We're not kadosha. We're not all evil. And we're probably not kadosh. We're not all holy. We're... You know, we're in the middle there somewhere. Hopefully trending towards Kadosh, 
as opposed to Kedosha. And I can think of a few people that I would describe as Kadosh in my lifetime that have been, that just seem to have the character of God. Everything they do seems to just, you know, I'm thinking of the Browns, but there, there, are, there are people like that. Most of us probably don't live that way. And the, the thing that I think we're going to see at the end times is, uh, remember when Osama bin Laden was allegedly killed and there were people celebrating out on the streets, you know, fireworks, and, you know, typically young, young people. And they were cheering and chanting and all that stuff. Because Osama bin Laden was Kodesha. He was all evil. He was probably, I would assume, I've never met the guy, but I would assume he was seriously trending towards all evil. And they were happy to see that. Revelation 11.10, and this is regarding the two prophets of God, you know, that come, that uh, testify for him, that I believe are Moses and Elijah, the Jew and the Gentile, law and the prophets. Um, Revelation 11.10 says this, And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on earth. So these people were kadosh. These were totally holy people. And they were murdered, killed because of their testimony. And the world, the, the people of the world will be out on the street celebrating and cheering and exchanging gifts for one another because these two holy men were killed. They're acting the same way that the kids were acting when Osama bin Laden was killed. And I guess my question is, I look at the world today and I am concerned that the people that live in the world are smack in the middle of Kodesh and Kodesha and cannot determine the difference. They see Osama bin Laden as a fundamentalist and they see Moses and Elijah as a fundamentalist. They see them as the same thing and they see them as bad and they see their middle of the road. I can accept this. I can't accept that sort of one tolerant coexist thing as being good. They see that as being the goal, as being good. That's where the world's going. Well, what does that mean for us? When you, if, if we are supposed to look to the Exodus generation, what happened to the Exodus generation? Remember the golden calf thing? Do you remember what the Levites were doing? One commentary, Jewish commentary I read said that the Levites were aloof to the people. They were separated from the, they saw this going down and knew this was bad. So they separated themselves from the people who were dancing around the golden calf. And the result was the Lord made them the priests. He, he rejected the firstborn because they had, you know, uh, danced around the calf. And he replaced them with the Levites because they were aloof. Then 13 months later, they travel up to the promised land, get the evil report. The Lord sends them packing for 38 more years. What about the Levites? They went with them. If this is true, and I suspect it mostly is, the time is coming when the Lord is going to take his people just like he did at the Exodus and teach them something. And I don't know what that's going to look like or how that's going to happen, but I'm pretty certain that we're going to go with him just like the Levites did. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to believe what they believe or be punished like they were punished. But if we're his people, we're going to go with them and we're going to have to suffer, you know, the indignities of, of him teaching us how to follow him. And you think that's unfair, or I think that's unfair. And it seems not encouraging because on Sunday, you know, we do rapture practice and we're just jumping up because we're ready to go now. We're going to go straight to heaven. We're not going to have to go through any of this stuff. And that would be my hope. I suspect that's not the way it's going to work. So I would encourage us to know enough about the Lord, to know enough about his word, to know enough about his commandments and judgments and statutes and things, that when this happens, if he takes his people, because he loves them all, if he takes them all to a place like the desert where he can teach them the things that he needs to teach them, that there will be people there, there have to be people there, who can show them the right way. And perhaps that's our job. Perhaps we don't just get to, you know, fly off and go directly to heaven and have a great time. Perhaps, and I suspect more than perhaps, I'm reasonably certain, there will be a, an interval of time in which he will have people like the Levites who will have to go with them, but will be there to show them something. And what if that's you? What if that's me? What if he asks you to do it? Would you say no? Would you say yes? You know, do you say, I don't want to get involved? I don't know. I mean, you have to make that decision for yourself. But I'm only suggesting that um, these things may come to pass and that we should be ready for them to the greatest extent that we can. We shouldn't be shocked if it doesn't happen exactly the way we thought it was going to happen if it's not just a slide into fun and profit for all eternity, if there's an interim job for us, because I suspect that there will be. So anyway, that's enough of this Torah portion for tonight.